Today, we're joined by Jason Sherman. He's a successful entrepreneur, award-winning filmmaker, and published author. He's a tech startup expert and a journalist. He's been featured in several media outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, The Verge, and ABC News. Jason is fluent in Spanish. He is a classically trained violinist and was a featured speaker in Fox's futurist TV show, Exploration Earth 2050. Thanks for listening to Bowties in Business. I'm your host, Tim Kubiak. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe. You can always find us on our socials at Bowties in Business on Facebook and Instagram, Bowties and B-I-Z on Twitter. And you can find me at Tim Kubiak just about everywhere, including Twitter, the website, and LinkedIn. Jason runs a web and mobile dev shop and film studio from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He gives guest lectures at area universities and regularly supports hackathons or tech events. And we're going to go a little bit deeper into that for those of you that don't know what those are. He functions as a mentor and a judge. His methodologies on entrepreneurship and data-driven decisions are his main source of education to those he helps all around the world. With his startup book, Strap on Your Boots, is the culmination of his life's work to help other entrepreneurs succeed and is the focus of the class he created called Startup Essentials. He originally taught the course as a guest lecturer at area universities, including the Wharton School of Business. Now the course is available online for students at Udemy. As always, you can find the link to his site, which is jasonsherman.org, in the show notes. And if you're driving, you can just click it when we're done. Jason, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for inviting me, Tim. I appreciate it. This is awesome. You have an amazing background. It's very diverse. So can you tell us a little more about yourself and how you got to where you are? Yeah, man, it's, a, it's so many different stories and so many different industries. And I think that's pretty much the, the takeaway here is that over the past couple of decades, I decided to try different things. And while I tried different things, whether they succeeded or failed, or I learned a lot, I picked up skills along the way. And, and what I found is in every industry, there's a lot of similarities. So whether it's, it's writing or building an app or creating a physical product, or making a movie or any kind of uh, musical endeavor, there's a process that you have to take in order to get from point A to point B. And there's a lot of walls, challenges and things like that and obstacles that you have to overcome. So I just dedicated my life to figuring out a way how to navigate all that. And it got me to eventually succeed in various different types of businesses to get me to be a full-time entrepreneur. And that's where I'm at today. So not everybody who listens to the show comes from a tech background. So do you mind explaining what a web and mobile dev shop is? Yeah, absolutely. So there's clients out there, whether it's uh, institutions, governments, museums, schools, or just people who need to build either a website or a mobile app for whatever reason, whether it's something personal or a public facing project. And they, they don't wanna outsource to someone in a different country because of the challenges that come with that. So they find a local web dev shop, which someone like me who has a, a small team of people and we kind of are a concierge service. So we don't just build your product. We listen to what your core value proposition is first. We help you create a technical document second, and then we take you through mockups, UI, UX challenges or designs. And then we start building an MVP, not a full blown platform like a lot of companies out there do. We build an MVP, a minimum viable product first so that they can validate the market, find their customers or their revenue, and then we can start building a scalable platform. So that's what, a, that's what we do personally. And I think that a lot of companies out there, they just take the contract, take the money, build whatever the client wants, and it usually ends in disappointment. 
so because I've got a little bit of experience that I didn't expect to have in the space, I'm going to ask some different questions. <laughs> Sounds good to me. So on the minimum viable product, how much do you see when you, when people are testing that, that the original intent of what they thought they had to build versus what the customer demand is really is? Yeah, this is great. Uh, this is actually um, a part of my book. It's the, the needs versus wants, which is what I call it. And when most, and I'd say most, 99% of clients who've come my way, they bring me like a 10 page document of what they want to build. And I look at this thing and I'm like, this is going to take like a year, two years to build. And it's what I call version five. We need to build version one, two, three, and four first. So what you do is you split up the document into those phases, those versions, those sections. And you say, okay, you know, sir, ma'am, these sections we're going to build later on. Let's focus on this first version as your MVP. And the way you figure out what to build in your MVP is anything that you want, you remove. Anything that you need to figure out if your target market will use your core value proposition, that's what you include. And it's typically one or two features. That's it. You don't put in 10 features. I don't care if you say, but I need this in order to, to do this. No, you don't need it. You want it. There's a big difference between the two. You know, it's funny. It takes me back actually to my early days in business, which was on the telecom side of the tech world, right? And at the time it was AT&T and it spun off into Lucent and ultimately Avaya. But I came from that hybrid key PBX world. And every year or 18 months, they'd have a new release and they'd release these 10 or 12 great new features, right? That were going to leapfrog the competition. And when you sold it, everybody implemented the same seven that had been there from the beginning, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Everyone copycats everybody. Everyone copycats everybody, right? And, and you only needed hold, transfer, and speakerphone, right? <laughs> yeah, Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. In, you know, cr their credit, they were a multi-billion dollar company. It was a multi-billion dollar industry. But frankly, it's been replaced. You know, they still exist, but it's been replaced by cell phones. And I think that's the other thing with tech. What is the life cycle of an app for somebody who has one developed? That's a great question, man, because I have this thing uh, that I give to clients before I sign them on called startup guidelines. It's kind of like a one pager that gives you some. And, and the last thing on that list is what you just asked me. And it's that you're never actually done building an app. The life cycle never, it's, it's actually really, really tricky because there's no such thing as a life cycle. Because if you build a proper MVP and you build a proper platform and you're getting feedback from your users, you should be iterating constantly, changing your, your app, adding features, removing features, changing features. And not only that, but when you launch an app, there's a misconception that it's finished. Your app is never finished. You have to constantly update it to meet requirements from Apple and Google, for example. When they release a new iOS version, a new operating system, you have to then change your app to meet those specifications. If not, it might just break. It might not work. So the life cycle, to me, it's never ending. It's, uh, it just keeps changing. Now, in terms of will you become obsolete, which is maybe what you're asking, um, that's hard to say because if you launch a photo sharing app and next thing you know, and this is you know, before Instagram, next thing you know, Instagram comes out and clobbers you, uh, look at Facebook. Facebook killed MySpace. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of, uh, we can find a lot of examples in the market where a company destroyed another company because it, it, it made it obsolete. So 
I'd say uh, get as much traction and revenue as you can before that happens. So with your book, let's talk about that. By the way, for those of you watching on YouTube, you can see it behind him by the lightsaber. So we're going to have some Star Wars talk at the end here for those of you that listen to the end. Um, <laughs> so, so is that driven largely from working with tech startups? Yes. Uh, Strap on your boots is a realistic guide to building and scaling your startup. So here's what happens. This is, this, it's so funny. For, for 10 to 15 years, I found myself self-helping entrepreneurs doing the same thing over and over and over again. The same things that I was applying in my own startups, methodologies, tactics, strategies. And I got tired of explaining myself and, and helping people doing the same thing. So I said, I have to write it down so I can hand somebody the book and say, and, I, and, and to be honest, I've, I've only sold a certain amount of the books. I mostly give them away to, to help people because it's an easier way for me to start a conversation with them. And, you know, imagine handing someone a book that saves them two years of time and $50,000, which is pretty much what it does. And they can knock it out in three to six months and spend very little money, a hundred bucks or 500 bucks or, or no, zero dollars. Then after they accomplish everything in the book, then they can come back to me and say, okay, I did everything in your book. I'm a much better entrepreneur now, but I still want to work with you. And that's usually where my clients come in is, is they, they, they learn a lot. They feel like they, they got a lot of value, but they want someone like me on their team to help them get to the next level. And, and that's pretty much where it came from. So when you're working with those founders and, and the creators of those businesses and they're coming to you, what areas are they asking you to help in? Oh, wow. What, what areas are they not asking me to help them in? Um, it could be anywhere between um, idea validation, just figuring out if they have a, you know, validating their concept. Is this a good idea? Um, I, I steer them in the direction of figuring out, doing some homework. It's always doing homework. Like you got to do these things to figure out um, I make it easy for them, of course. Um, UI, UX, like doing some mock-up designs, figuring out how an app should look, or even a physical widget, like a product, um, get it, you know, getting it 3D printed, getting a prototype, getting it in people's hands so they can play with it and see, see if it works right. Uh, building a platform, you know, back-end, front-end, marketing, business development, huge, you know, press releases and talking to journalists, um, building a website, doing your social media pages, um, reaching out to uh, different team members and interns and things like that, uh, running contests, whatever, anything that has to do with, with getting your business up and running, whether it's marketing business or even investment pitches, you know, PowerPoint presentations. Um, I don't do as much of the wide scope as I used to. It's, it's more technology-based now. But if I do get a client who doesn't know how to do any of that, and they want to offer extra payment for certain services, then I add it all in. Like I said, it's a con concierge service where you don't have to go to this place and that place and this place and that place. You can get it all in one shot, which saves a lot of time and money too. It does. And so I work with founders on the business strategy side and the sales model side, right? And I find myself trying to rein in feature sets, even though that's not my world, saying, what do we have that you can sell? And who's going to buy it and, and taking people on that journey. And it's to your point on that five-year plan. It's amazing how often I sit down there like, we're going to be the next X, right? It's like, okay, fantastic. I, I believe you can be X. Let's get to A, right? What can you sell? What can we drive revenue with? Love right? it. And, and I get to be the bad guy, right? I, so 
That's Darth, the beauty. Darth Vader. Exactly. I get to be Darth Vader. I come in with my huffy voice and my shiny black helmet and tell you, if you don't blow up the planet, you're dead. <laughs> if you don't make the sales, you're not going to exist, right? Yeah, exactly. That's a great way to look at it. It's the same thing I say version one or, or point A. You have to start from the beginning. But doesn't everybody always say, I have the next billion dollar idea. We're going to put so-and-so out of business. It just never happens. It never happens. They need to understand that. For, yes. every one, for every one successful startup, there's like a million that, that fail. And the other thing that I find, especially with Silicon Valley companies, and I, I work a fair amount with them in the security space, is everybody's got an 18 to 36 month exit, right? I'm, I'm going to take all this money. I'm going to give up all my, a lot of my equity and a lot of my control to somebody who's going to bleed me for fees and then flip me in the end. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, and, you know, you see it all the time. Well, I want to get bought by one of these four Goliaths. And that's my whole game plan. Get enough clients in these two verticals that somebody picks me off. Yeah. And that's also a tough one. Uh, everyone that has come to me in the past always says, we're going to be acquired by this company. And what a lot of them don't understand is I've run startups that had meetings with large players to be acquired. And they always want a million users or a million dollars in revenue. Those are the two, that's it. Those, they wanna see those two things. Yeah. If you can get a million bucks in revenue or a million users, you'll get acquired by someone. But do you know how hard it is to get those two things? It's freaking difficult, man. It's freaking difficult. It's very, very difficult. Almost impossible without funding. So they need to start, you know, starting small, but you can only do so much, right? Right, you know, I love the sick conversations. You sit down with people that are looking at that and you go, what's your EBIT? When do you move from burn rate to cash flow positive? Oh, we're going to do a series A through a series C and we think we can raise. No, no. What's your EBIT? If you had to bootstrap this, which was part of what really grabbed me when you reached out was the title of your book. Strap if you had to bootstrap this and keep the equity, when do you turn cash flow positive? And, and most of them just think they're going to get funding. Not only that, a lot of entrepreneurs, sadly, believe that they don't need a revenue strategy or monetization strategy in their apps. They always go for the user acquisition and that they say, but look, Snapchat or, you know, Tinder or Instagram didn't have any monetization, but they were acquired by Facebook or whoever. And I'm like, yeah, but that's, that doesn't happen. It's like, it was very rare. It happened years ago before the, you know, the explosion of apps. And, and nowadays it's much more difficult. Investors are more risk averse because they used to FOMO. They used to throw money at the wall, wait till it's stuck but they don't do that anymore. Now they want to see traction, proof of concept, revenue. They don't care. They want to see those things. If you don't have them, if it's not your uncle or your friend, you're not going to get funding. So believe me, I've tried many, many times and, and investors no longer want to take that chance. They want to, they want a sure thing. Yeah, they do. They want solid. The tech has to be solid. The execution has to be solid. And, and in the app space, my understanding is, is the user retention has to be very solid. Absolutely. DAUs and MAUs are daily active users, monthly yep. active users. Yeah. And if you look, you know, doesn't Twitter still reports on that? I don't know about anybody else, but I catch it every time they do an earnings. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's important. So talk about a hackathon. We probably got a lot of people listening that don't know what a hackathon is, have no idea what it is, let alone how to judge one. Well, I can tell you this. It's, um, it's a lot of caffeine because it's usually 24 hours long. Um, it, it usually takes place in a university auditorium or a, a big building. And it can be anywhere between five teams and 50 teams. 
of two to three um, entrepreneurs, usually programmers, because they're hackers. And they have to hack together a platform or an app or something in that 24 hours. And then they do presentations in front of everybody. And whoever does the best wins like first place, second place, third place. It's usually prizes, cash prizes, sometimes mentorships. Sometimes um, you get like um, into a program with like, you know, high, higher up CEOs or whatnot. Um, and you're judged by people. I've, I've been judges in these hackathons. And these kids, man, they are brilliant. I mean, first of all, they're really good programmers. Um, they're very creative. And they normally are solving a world problem of some sort. So it's not just like, oh, here's my Instagram. No, it's like, here's my AI that helps people um, have water in places that don't have water. Or here's my um, electricity saving device that you plug in and it monitors using your app. Like there's just really unique um, ideas and they're all meant to help the world in some way. Um, that's what a hackathon is. And I think they're a really good place to meet really good programmers. And just to feel the energy in that room is pretty crazy. It's like it, 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 you feed on it, you know? So when you're judging, do you look for quality of code or concept or a blend of both? Yeah, you know, it's funny you said that because as far as I know, from all the hackathons I've been a part of, I've never seen it have to do with the code. It always had to do with the concept how far along they came. So did they finish it? Because a lot of times they don't finish the app. It's always like a rinky dink, almost prototype, but, but a lot of teams, they, they, they fully fleshed it out. It works. Um, presentation matters too. How pretty is it? You know, how good is their presentation? Um, how much did they research the market? How many statistics did they have? Cause you got to do a PowerPoint presentation. And you got to show the app demo matters too. If you can get, if you can show a really cool app demo and like a robot comes across the, the, the stage and you have an app that does something with the robot, you're going to, you're going to get some eyeballs. Um, so yeah, it's not really the code. They don't really care what, I mean, they do talk about what stack they built on, like, you know, PHP, MySQL or JavaScript or, you know, iOS or Android. They talk about that, but no one, that's just people glaze over that. It's usually, um, the, you know, the presentation of it. That's interesting because, you know, to me, I hear hackathon and I'm thinking, oh, are they developing X to get to Y, right? And I'm the business guy going, okay, what's the tech stack look like? Right. We care, but investors, and, and you should, and I'm sure you know this, investors famously do not care. As soon as you start talking technology, their eyes roll. They want to hear how many users, how much money, and how do I get my money back? <laughs> So in the case of these apps, they want to know that these apps are going to, you know, cause an impact of some kind. So move, moving from the dev side, you, you're in the film business too, right? Yeah, I'm a filmmaker. I've made a couple successful movies. Talk about your movies. Well, this goes back, I'd say uh, about 14 years now, where I decided I should make movies better than what I was watching. And... I made a, my first movie was a horror movie, which believe it or not, I'm not a horror buff, but it was just the easiest kind of movie to make. This was back when like Paranormal Activity and Blair Witch Project were, were, were popular. So I made something similar to those and it won a film festival, got picked up by an agent in Los Angeles and got distributed worldwide. A couple of, in between that and my most current movie, I became a videographer for the tech scene. So I was, inter, I was inter, you know, doing interviews, um, filming hackathons, filming tech events, 
um, doing the journalism thing. I was doing articles, filming videos, taking pictures. And I became like the go-to guy for photography and video in Center City, Philadelphia, which to me was great because I was running a startup. I got, I guess after, I, I guess I did my run. I did enough of that for years and I was actually making an income from that, but I turned to, to make another movie and I made a historical documentary that won some awards, got picked up by an agent again, got distributed worldwide. And then WHYY and PBS licensed it for a whole year for TV. I was like, mind blown, you know, I couldn't believe it. And the governor of Pennsylvania even wrote a bill stating that August 20th uh, in Pennsylvania would be named King's Highway Day after my movie, The King's Highway. And I couldn't believe it. So all these things were happening. This was 2016, 2017, and 2018. Turned into a nonprofit. I started doing historical initiatives for the, for the city of Philadelphia and um, getting onto the newspapers and getting in the news all the time. It turned into like a job that I never asked for, but it, it fell into my lap. And so here I am now making my third documentary. I started filming it before COVID, had to stop when COVID happened. So I got six months of filming in and um, it's called Cutting Corners. It's a real estate documentary about uh, developers cutting corners on buildings. And um, I'm, still, I'm still working on it now for my studio, but I'm doing a lot of interviews like this through Zoom to finish the movie. Um, so we'll see what happens. I'm gonna try to get it done this year. That's interesting. So are you, are you looking at commercial buildings, residential building in it? It's mostly residential. See, the, pro the problem that we're facing is, and this happened to my brother, actually. Say you own a home and the developer wants to knock down the building next to yours. When he does that, yours might fall down too because they're not properly doing it. They're, not, they're, not, they're just digging out the foundation. They're not pinning your, your, your building. So this has killed a lot of people. Uh, this has damaged a lot of buildings. Yeah, it's it's not good. It's not good. My brother's building was completely demolished and he had a really big three-story building. His three tenants had to get out of the house at four o'clock in the morning. The fire chief came and everything. Wow. Yeah, this is it's not it's just not a good situation. And and we feel as though, you know, when I say we the producers and I I have people that that are running initiatives on Facebook and whatnot that are battling this daily out there in the streets, you know, combating the lead and the asbestos from the dust from the demolitions are affecting um, people getting cancer, kids getting, uh, you know, asthma, dogs get dying. Just, it's just, it's just a bad, you know, we we're, ex we're exposing it basically in this film and, um, and we'll see, we'll see how it goes. It's a lot of work, man. Making a movie is a lot of work. I honestly can't imagine. Do you cross that over? Do you add video elements for startups and clients as you're building apps and building websites? Is that something you bring to the table? Absolutely. It's in, it's in my course. It's in my book. It shows you how to, how to make videos properly, um, eye-pleasing, catchy. Uh, when it comes to a movie, you got to make a trailer. When it comes to apps, you got to make another trailer of your app to showcase what it does. Your product needs, uh, you know, one of the examples I give in my book is the million dollar shave club or the dollar shave club where the guy made that video that went viral and he like subsequently made $64 million in revenue and then got bought by Unilever for a billion dollars. It all started with that video. You know, so making a video, and as you know, video is a very powerful medium. We upload roughly the, the, the whole history of television in, in one day on YouTube, you know, like thousands of, of hours of, you know. So video is very powerful. It's only growing. It's getting exponentially more important. Uh, podcasts are also growing exponentially as well because Hollywood and a lot of um, video production companies 
can't shoot because of COVID, right? So they're doing what's called a studio in a box where now they're shooting in a studio, in a, in a controlled environment. Um, something I didn't know, I found out by accident was The Mandalorian, very famous show, a Star Wars show, Mandalorian. They shot that entire thing in a studio in a box. None of it was no shot. On, none, of, none of it was shot on location. All of it was shot in a in a green screen. And actually, they didn't use green screen. They used a new technology, a wall of LEDs. So they would send a crew out to film these really awesome environments, come back, put it on the wall, and then the Mandalorian would stand in front of it. Isn't that crazy? They they would build inset stuff so it looks like they're there. Yeah. But behind them was all. I couldn't believe it. I was like. The whole show was shot in a studio. <laughs> they fooled everybody. That's incredible, actually. The ability to do that. You think about it. green screen, you know, I, I put one in my basement. I painted the walls, the chroma key green, probably, I'll say, 14 years ago. Because my kids were screwing around with early video, right, stuff and wanting to drop themselves into crazy places. But now to have essentially a nine inch nails concert behind you with the LEDs, right? <laughs> can't beat that. You can't, right? But to do a whole broadcast show that way, that's amazing. I yeah. couldn't believe it. And I think a lot of Hollywood studios are going to start doing that. It also shows you how independent producers like myself could write screenplays to cater that kind of production. And that's what a lot of people are doing. I noticed this 2020 on the blacklist, a lot of the screenplays that got picked were, were more scaled down, low budget, you know, minimal characters, minimal locations. You can tell the quarantine's affecting these types of productions. It's interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. So how do you bring it all together? That's it. <laughs> you got some great questions, man, because, uh, People ask me that sometimes and I tell them just, you know, let's say you're an accountant and your day revolves around counting numbers, filling out spreadsheets, calculations, whatnot. You know how to do your job, right? Or you're a lawyer, you know how to do your job and your doctor, you know how to do your job. This is my job. So to me, it's not so much that I bring it all together. I just do my job. You know, every day I wake up, I do a little bit of tech. I do a little bit of video. I do a little bit of podcasting. I do a little bit of writing. I do a little bit of reaching out to people. I do a little bit of research. You know, it's just, that's my job. You know, it's, it's so, so to me, after so many years of trying so many different things and finding the things that I love to do. So as Confucius said, when you find a job you love, you never work a day in your life. I've reached that. I, I don't work. And people say to me, what do you do besides work? And I'm like, well, I love what I do. So to me, it's not really work. And what's interesting is once you reach a certain level of success or expertise, you realize that all the things that you're good at, they work in unison. So technology, an app, you have to design things for it. Well, you have to do the same thing for a movie. When you make a video for an app, you have to write a script. You got to do the same thing for a movie. You know, when you're working on uh, a podcast or a book, you have to do research. Same thing for an app, same thing for So that each industry, they really are intertwined in so many different ways that you start to find the correlation. And that's when things get really cool when you're like, oh, I can do all of these things and I don't have to hire anybody, which is amazing, by the way. 
not having to hire people to do all this different stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it, be it becomes expensive if not, you know? It does. And it eats away. So I'll give you a theory of mine. So I was trained as a guitarist. So you play violin. I've always said my ability to do all the different things that I do and look at it from all the different angles came from the fact that I had to learn forms and factors across six planes from the time I was seven years old. Right. So I argue that anybody who plays a stringed instrument to any level of proficiency has already learned to think about how things interchange and how they shift between one level and the next. Absolutely. Yeah. During the pandemic, I was learning the piano. So I've been teaching myself the piano because my dad's a professional pianist. So that's kind of like the same thing. Like you play the violin or the guitar and then you say, well, I want to try filmmaking or I want to try playing the piano. So now I'm trying a different instrument and you realize it's the same concept, different structure. Yep. So I, I agree. Instruments and music, it's... But the good thing about music, though, is that we get a chance to take a break from the day and just enjoy playing some music. Clears your head, you know. I won't speak for you, but I can get lost in that in a way that just only a few other things in the world will take my mind to the same kind of place. I agree. Absolutely. So what do you like to play? For me, um, so I, I don't play as much violin because that was like the first 21 years of my life. I was classically trained playing in orchestras and things like that. The piano, I like to play songs that are popular. Game of Thrones, Mad World, Coldplay, um, John Lennon. Just anything that I enjoy to listen to, I like to try to play it. And uh, that's pretty much it. For me, it's just, it's just playing some popular songs that if someone comes over or if I go somewhere um, where there's a piano, I can play some songs that people recognize. That's kind of what I like to do. That's awesome. Piano players are underappreciated at parties these days, or at least pre-COVID, I thought they were. Not many people sit down. I have a piano in my living room, right? But in the 15 years I've lived in this house, not many people have come in and sat down and just played. I always take, I always take advantage of that. You ever go to a hotel and the lobby has a piano, restaurant, piano, you know, friend's house, who's never touched the piano in their life, there's dust on it. I, yep. sit, down, I sit down every time and play it, every single time. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, because I don't have a piano. I have a Yamaha keyboard. So whenever I can play a real piano, it's great. The, the, the touch and the feel is a little bit different. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's go back to your book a little bit. Okay. Okay. So what if you're mid-stage as an entrepreneur and you, you think you've got it out of the box, but you're not sure you've got it together? Is it still a place that people can plug into and shorten the learning curve? Absolutely. Uh, mostly because when I meet entrepreneurs who are mid-level, where they've already proved their concept, they've already built a beta or an MVP, they've already validated their concept and they have some users, there's still that period in between where you have to scale, right? You have to get from that point to that point. And there's that big gray area in the middle. That's a tough one. That's where you have to iterate a lot. That's where you have to get a lot of customer feedback. That's where you're going to go through a new version of your app. This is a thing that no one ever believes until it happens to them. And I'm going to tell you, Tim, it happens every single time. After you build your first version of your app and you get your first initial user base, your first feedback, et cetera, you're going to have to rebuild your app eventually, whether you like it or not. Yeah. The reason, there's a couple of reasons why. The first reason is 
it's usually not scalable when you first build it because it's a prototype. The second reason is you might've built the wrong thing or the wrong framework or the wrong stack, unless you're a programmer. Okay, if you're a programmer, you probably did it the right way, but it's so rare that I get pro, I've never, actually, I've never gotten a programmer as a client, not once. So, interesting. yeah, it's never been, a, yeah, never got a programmer. I happen to be a programmer myself. I stopped coding, you know, I mostly manage my, my programmers, but being a programmer helps a lot. Uh, but yeah, I mean, being a mid-level entrepreneur, it doesn't mean that you know how to pitch investors. It doesn't mean that you know how to market your product on social media. It doesn't mean that you know how to properly uh, iterate your, your platform or your product. So the book actually is meant for two types of entrepreneurs. It says it on, it says it on the book. It's either you are just starting out and don't know what to do, or you've already started and you hit a wall. I get, I get two of those. So I've gotten both. And um, interesting, interesting story. Uh, I, I had a recent client who had outsourced their app three times. And each time that they outsourced the app, they failed to launch the app. They couldn't get it built the way they wanted to. They were recommended to me as the fourth. My team and I succeeded in building the app and launching it for them. There were still issues. So they wanted to get like local people to build for them. They wanted to stop paying money basically. But the point was they finally were able to get to a team that was able to build and launch their app for them. So that's kind of why this happens to a lot of people is they, they outsource, they fail, and then they have to find someone that can do it for them. So you find a lot of those people. That's, most of my clients are like that. So you hit on something earlier that I, I want to bring it back to because it's actually a topic of debate now. And so I'm going to frame it in a lot of programming, whether people realize it or not, is really done offshore. And the solar winds hack in my background's data security, right? The solar winds hack has brought some of the things that happened in their stack that were done offshore, brought the question of onshore versus offshore programming. Can you talk about some of the advantages, but also some of the drawbacks of one over the other? Man, I wrote a great article about this on Medium that got so many views. It's insane. And it's a pretty long list of good things and bad things. So it would take, it, we would need a decent amount of time for me to go through that. So I can kind of give you a shorter version. Um, I think the first thing to note when you are taking in an outsourced company is 99.9% .9 of them are going to give you what you ask for. So they're, 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 you, you pay them for a platform, you give them a, technical document, they're just going to build that kind of like a Betty Crocker cake mix that you take and you just put the ingredients together, build the cake, and then here you go. They're not going to customize it. They're not going to be creative. They're not going to say, well, I can make a custom cake that tastes better with vegan ingredients or whatever. They're just going to give you what you pay for. So that's a big problem for most people because what happens is when you pay a company and they give you what you asked for, it generally is not what you asked for. It's generally missing a lot of stuff. It doesn't work the way you thought because they didn't understand you. Um, there's a huge time difference. Time zones are a problem because you got to work late at night or early in the morning, language barrier, things like that. So, and there's a lot of other problems too. Um, one of the biggest ones I found 
I've worked with probably 50 companies over the years until I finally uh, was able to start hiring programmers that I worked really well with. And that's what my team consists of is you hit a wall when it comes to skill set. And to me, this is the most important one. When you're building a platform, an app, a website, whatever, and there's some complicated features or functions, when you get to that point and they can't do it, they can't, they don't know how to build it, you get stuck. So my advice to every entrepreneur out there, and I always say it in my, my videos, my course and whatnot, is focus on the, the most difficult piece of your platform first as your MVP. Build all the easy stuff around it. Do, do the hard piece. Get your source code down at the core to do the really hard stuff. The most difficult thing you can possibly think of. Because if you can, here's, it's, it's, so, it's so common sense to me. If you can find a programmer or a team of programmers that can build that complicated piece, guess what? They can build all the easy stuff around it. <laughs> so is the easy stuff the UX and the UI? Well, no, the, I mean, it's, a, it's a variety of things. I'm login, sign up you know, profile creation, uploading a photo, um, GPS, your backend infrastructure, your database, you know, uh, instant chat, you know, just like basic stuff that you see in apps, posting an update, you know, I, yeah. I call that easy stuff because it's all generally pretty easy. Complicated stuff would be anything to do with videos. Videos are complicated. You know, people fail to remember that the iPhone is only a decade old and video apps didn't get good until about halfway into that. You know, like when I built my video dating app Instamore back in 2013, it was clunky, it was slow, it crashed. The videos didn't look that good. Every year that went on after that, the video compression got better, the video quality got better, the video sizes got smaller, you know, the cameras got better quality. So I say video is a tough one, compression is a tough one. And another really difficult thing to do is to build something that a lot of people use at the same time in different ways. That's how an app crashes usually. Uh, does 5G change that dynamic in the world for you because of the throughput being so much higher? Not yet, because we're still building apps you know, on a low scale. And most people are, believe it or not, building a lot of website platforms, like web platforms. I always recommend people to build web platforms first for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's cheaper, takes less time, less problems because it's generally, you know, web's been around for, you know, you know since the nineties or even earlier than that. So we kind of have a handle on the web. Mobile apps cost more money, take more time, are more difficult to build, have more issues. So I always tell people to focus on web platforms because you can make it web, you know, like a web app that works on phones too, using React.js or whatnot. Um, 5G will definitely make things easier for, I think the video platforms because of the bandwidth problems that we have. And um, also with Elon Musk's uh, Spacelink or Starlink satellite systems that he has going on, a lot of people who weren't able to use apps in the past will soon be able to do so in underprivileged or underserved countries or, or territories. So we're going to start seeing a, a more broader acceptance of, of apps. And uh, I think that's pretty much what 5G is going to help do too. You know, you, stu you stumbled on one there that I didn't plan to go down, but let's have that conversation because one of the big topics 
in the tech world is that digital divide, whether it's rural America or another nation, whether it's income-based or location-based, right? The ability for people, and, and I personally believe that computer programming languages are the first truly universal language. So I'm coming from that viewpoint, right? Do you see things like Elon Musk's program and other things truly closing the gap on the digital divide? Or is it going to take a DARPA-like project to truly drive that? I think Elon Musk's program is the first step in the right direction. Uh, in 2015, I was interviewed at Google headquarters and for, for a startup position. And this was one of the biggest questions they asked me. It's how do we get internet to work in underprivileged and underrepresented countries? And I gave them different answers. Uh, my answer was not Elon Musk's Starlink, or, or I think it's called Starlink. And the fact that he did it, and he's got hundreds of satellites out there right now, and uh, you can now use this, it's going to change the game. You know, think about all the infrastructure that Verizon and Comcast had to lay out fiber optic cable, the tunnels they had to dig, the wires and cables they had to, it's, it's insane how much infrastructure, I can't even fathom how many miles of cable they had to run, how many data stations they had to build. And, you know, all the contractors had to go out there and putting all those boxes in when all you had to do is shoot some satellites in the orbit and suddenly have hundred megabytes per second speed all around the world. So I feel like this is the future happening now. And I think that there's a way there's, he might displace a lot of these companies. I think that, you know, these satellites might start to overpower and overtake, you know, why, you know, think about the 80% of the world or whatnot, who doesn't have fast internet speed. He's, yeah. he's tapping into that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I've seen some of the telco stuff because I've worked a fair amount in that space where, you know, and we'll pick on New York City because I think this one's published, but they were looking at putting essentially the hotspots with the in-ground backhaul, you know, and giving free Wi-Fi access in the city. Certainly Google was publicized for doing that in Kansas City or in Kansas, right? And people have all had these angles, but it hasn't been just pure, in my mind, pure connectivity. They all wanted to siphon the data off the top and make their profit back from it there, where don't know enough about what Musk is doing, but at some point it's going to be like the water, right? You turn on your tap, it's going to come out. You have Absolutely. to have it. Absolutely. So let's take a journey. You mentioned AI and ML earlier. And for those of you that aren't tech nerds like us, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, yeah. Are we in a Terminator situation? Let's start with that. Let's go sci-fi <laughs> out of the gate. Oh my God. I hope not, man. I really hope not. That would be a bad situation. Um, no, I mean, I think we're, we're in the phase of artificial intelligence where we're still early on, right? We're still, you know, I, I love the Boston dynamics robots dancing and, and opening doors and things like that. They're great. I think it's going to be a lot of that assisting humans in the beginning, um, senior citizens who can't open a jar or open a door or need help getting in and out of the house to go to the doctor. I think that we're going to have software that helps us do certain things much quicker. Parsing data is a big one. Uh, a lot of scientists have to parse data. And, you know, even for this coronavirus, you have to uh, parse some, all these different uh, data for vaccines. Maybe AI could have helped us get it done quicker. 
the Terminator situation, it, the reason why I think we're far off from that is because we're still in the, in the position where we control the computers, we control the AI, and as long as we keep the systems in place to be more about machine learning and more about augmented uh, intelligence as opposed to artificial intelligence. So say you turn a computer on, it has quantum computing, and we can now determine answers to things in milliseconds that would have taken us 10,000 years to come up with those answers. I think what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna see a, a shift in how humans are able to come up with answers to big problems. And the robots that we're gonna build, the androids that we're gonna build are gonna be more about you know, assisting us. Maybe it'll be more about helping us live longer by replacing our organs with synthetic ones. Uh, artificial intelligence, once we reach the singularity, which is the moment when artificial intelligence is more intelligent than all of human history combined, all their knowledge combined, more powerful. It'll know how to fix a lot of our problems. It'll know how to eradicate diseases. It'll know how to desalinate oceans for water in places that we don't have it. It'll help us with climate change. That's, to, to, at least in my opinion, AI and machine learning is, is really meant to enhance humanity's uh, living situation, to help us eradicate a lot of the issues that we have, and to help make our lives easier. It's not going to put everybody out of a job because people are going to still have to fix you know, the machines and, and, and monitor the software, and they're still going to have to do other things, green things, you know, new energy things, and we'll have to start different types of jobs, you know, so I think it'll be a, it's going to be an interesting era. I hope that we're all around to, to see how we thrive with, with the robots. Yeah. And so I was fortunate enough to be at a thing, I guess it was two and a half years ago now going on three years where there was a conversation about manufacturing using robotics and it wasn't truly AI. It was just throughput conversations. And frankly, where China sat, where the US sat, and where some other nations sat. It was fascinating to see where different places were. And it was delivered by a person who worked for the federal government, right? Um, where different places were and the opinions of where they were going and where our advantages and disadvantages as a nation were, just from a technology standpoint, just from a cost of production. But if you look, the innovation that's come out here, the fact that we're doing video today, we talked about video is complicated, right? When I got into tech in 92, you know, my dream was to be able to do a video call at, you know, a few frames a second. And now we're real time. And, you know, my kids that are in their 20s, they don't even blink. It's the expected standard. I always, so, I, I always tell everybody uh, we're living in the future. We're, we are. We hold these things in our hand that are basically computers that can do anything. And when we were kids, we fantasized about having these things. And, and now that we have them and we're going to space, we got, you know, space stations and, you know, we're on the moon, we're on Mars, we're going all, you know, we're literally living in a sci-fi world. I don't think people realize it. No, they, they don't appreciate it, right? I grew up, I first coded on a Commodore 64 and then went into a trash 80 and then got into the Windows world, right? Um, I'm not a programmer by your standards by any means, right? But, you know, the fact that, you know, I grew up watching Maxwell Smart talk on a shoe phone and now I've got 
two cell phones and a tablet and three other devices I can connect to people all over the world for, for essentially free is amazing. One of the things I, I have upstairs is uh, the Dick Tracy watch, you know? Yeah. And so when, when the iWatch came out, the Apple watch came out, I was like, oh my God, I'm Dick Tracy. Yeah. <laughs> like, I never thought I would be Dick Tracy in my life. That's it's insane. You know, it's insane to think that we are literally living these dreams. And, and that, that begs us to, to think, right? All of the things that we have came from sci-fi books, shows, and movies. They yeah. were influenced. Yeah. So, you know, people, people don't remember that either, that, you know, Isaac Asimov and H.G. Wells and all these, uh, you know, old uh, authors that wrote these books about sci-fi, we see them now in real life. Yeah, and, and we don't think of it as a thing from those books. But they came from the books. Yeah. So since we're in sci-fi, let's talk Star Wars. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> you get a lightsaber. I do so, have a lightsaber. So favorite character and favorite movie. Oh, come on. Are you serious? <laughs> come on. I can't make it too okay, easy. Okay, okay. You know what? You know what? I know everyone's favorite is Empire Strikes Back. But the reason why mine is Return of the Jedi is because when I was a kid, my grandfather ran a movie theater and I saw Return of the Jedi in the theater with my grandfather in the projection booth holding an Ewok teddy bear because, you know, I, I, I had to go to the doctor for something and my dad bought it for me as being a good sport. So that that just always got stuck in my mind was Return of the Jedi was you know, and it was a great movie because it was like they beat everybody and Darth Vader was Anakin Skywalker and felt bad for his son and. So it was, it was a great, you know, the, the, as a kid, the Ewoks, I mean, come on, the, the Ewoks were so cute, you know, um, favorite character. Whoo. Tough one too, because obviously I love the Jedi, but I always love Chewbacca, man. Chewbacca is so cool, you know, or C-3PO, but Chewbacca, I used to always do his growl. So that people said I did a really good Chewbacca growl. So that's why I like, I, I like Chewbacca. Plus he's so strong. He can rip people's arms off <laughs> and he's 200 years old. You know, Wookiees can live very long lives, you know? So they're very strong and, you know, very big, like seven foot tall and very old. So I just found them very interesting. It's interesting because you talk about the Wookiees that in my opinion, in the Han Solo spinoff film, Solo, they did yeah. a great, very simple, straightforward, but in a way heartbreaking yeah. version of what happened to the Wookiees, right? I, lo I love that movie. Out of yeah. all the new movies, it's the only one I liked. Yeah. The only one. Yeah. Yeah, I felt the ending of the, the original series was a bit eh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I agree. And the Mandalorian, I mean, woo <laughs> Yeah. Talk about, yeah. talk about quality programming. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and that, that was one of the ones that when they lost their kind of solo thing and got swallowed up by a mothership of sorts, right? Um, I was worried what was going to happen to Star Wars, but some of it's been okay. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so a so, couple last questions. Um, sure. What's the craziest thing that you've had happen in, a, in developing an app for somebody in a business situation? craziest thing um i'm gonna say that everything i told the entrepreneurs to do but they didn't listen ended up being the right thing 
nice. and they ended up having to do it later. And they wasted a lot of time and money figuring that out. So it's crazy to me because like, why didn't you just listen? You, you, you hired me for a reason, but yep. they're right. I'm wrong. You know? So uh, that's the craziest thing that happened was literally watching every single thing I said, not listen and then have to do it later on. Nice. To me, that's just crazy. I don't, I don't understand it. So you got it right. It tells you you did your homework and they didn't do theirs. Right. In a very simple way. And, and what should we have talked about today that you do or in your background that I didn't think of to ask you? That's a good question too. Um, I think what I've been focusing on more than anything in the past year, during, especially during the pandemic, has been a shift towards my personal brand more than my businesses. Um, I always had my personal brands available my book, my course, my podcast, my blog, my YouTube channel. I have like literally each one of them and I'm constantly putting out content, but I feel like I'm at the point now where I've succeeded enough, where I've helped enough people, or I've proven my value enough that now I can just be a content provider. And so as, a, as, a, as an example, uh, during this past two weeks, I've been recording the audiobook version of my book. Because a lot of people ask me, like, why don't you have the audiobook? Because reading a book is one thing and the Kindle version is the other. But if I'm driving or I'm at the gym or whatever, I want to just listen to it. So I've been recording the audiobook. I'm about halfway done. It should be done in about a week. And then it'll be on, it'll be on uh, Audible. So that's kind of what I think I'm focusing on now is more the, the content that I'm providing to people, the, the value that I provide through that content and I kind of think that I want to go down that road as well as film production. Uh, for the past two years, I've been writing screenplays for 14 years, but not really well. The past two years, I really, really taught myself how to write a really good, what's called a spec script, um, a, a script on speculation, which is a stripped down, an MVP. It's a, script, okay. it's a stripped down Hollywood script that you give to a producer and say, here's the stripped down script, find the studio that wants to make it. And then the director puts all his style and all his kind of his special touch on it because it's stripped down as well as the actors get a chance to make the character turn into whatever character they want because you left all that out. That's what a spec script is. So I've gotten really good at writing that. And I wrote one last year, 2020, during the pandemic. It started out as a romantic comedy, but ended up being a romantic drama with a little bit of comedy. And I submitted it to a couple um, contests. I didn't win any, but I got great feedback, which was, it showed that I improved a lot. So that's my goal, I think, is uh, getting my brand out there, writing screenplays, making movies, and I'll do the occasional technology platform if it comes my way, but I'm trying to shy away from it because it's a lot of work and um, I don't enjoy it as much as I used to when you have to babysit people, you know, it, it's, it's a different type of work, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I can say about that. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> remember I'm mercenary sales management, so I get thrown in other people's garbage you know, quite often to clean stuff up. <laughs> so. you know, I think one of the reasons why I still do it sometimes is because once in a while you get a client who listens and then you see it work. 
yeah. in a couple of months. It's like, boom, it worked. Here's your product. It launched, it works. Everything's great. No mistakes, no issues because they listened. And I love clients like that. I wish they were all like that, man. Matter of fact, that's why I made the startup guidelines. If they don't agree, that's what, that's more recent. It's a couple of years old. So if they don't agree to that list of stuff, then if you can't sign off on this, we can't work together. It's sort of the framework for scope of work. That's brilliant. It's mitigating risk. Yeah. <laughs> Jason, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you taking the time. As always, the link to Jason's site is in the show notes. It's in the show description when if you're listening on a podcast service. And thank you again. Thanks for having me, Tim. This was so much fun, man. This is a blast. May the force be with you. You too.